In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not snuffed it out. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of any human decision, nor of the husband's will, but born of God. The word took on flesh and made his dwelling amongst us, and we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Tallulah Bankhead was, without question, one of the most flamboyant and colorful women of her era. She lived from 1905 to 1968. She was a Broadway star. She starred in various Hitchcock movies. There was nothing subtle about her. I call her the velvet sledgehammer. She talked loud. She dressed loud. Not known for subtlety. She was also not much of a church-going girl, even though she came from Alabama. But on one occasion, she heard that there was to be real pageantry, real pomp and circumstance, at St. John the Divine Cathedral in New York City because a famous archbishop was coming to town for the special Christmas worship service. And she decided she wanted to go and see what was happening. Characteristically, she got there early so that she could choose her own seat because, as you know, many are called but pews are chosen. And she positioned herself right on the aisle near the front in the second row of this cathedral so she could look down the aisle and see the whole procession. The service began promptly on time with the organ cranking up and then the acolytes came down the aisle and then the crucifers started down the aisle followed by the children's choir, the young adult choir, the adult choir, the priests of that particular diocese and finally the archbishop himself with his gold mitered hat and his lame robe and his stole and he was swinging the incenser back and forth and the smoke was going up as he came down the aisle and so pretty soon the whole congregation was incensed. And just when he got to Tallulah Bankhead, she was so transfixed by this that spontaneously she reached out and grabbed the sleeve 
of the archbishop's robe and said, darling, your gown is divine, but your purse is on fire. <laughs> True story. This is not the reaction I'm looking for from this service. The Son of God, unlike that archbishop, did not enter the world trailing clouds of glory. Nor was there a great congregation standing at attention when he came. As we learn at every Christmas, Jesus came into the world in a humble manner and by humble means and was laid in a feeding trough in the back of some relative's home. It has been said that he came this way to make clear that no one and no condition of life was beneath his dignity. He stooped to conquer. He condescended so that he might lift us up from below. But lest we think Jesus only came from Bethlehem into this world, the prologue of John's Gospel suggests a much longer journey from a place far, far away. Every time I read John 1, I think of the beginning of the first Star Wars movie where you've got the word scrolling into outer space long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. I mean, it's that kind of story, to say the least. The first paragraph of John's Gospel is actually part of a hymn, or at least hymnic prose, and it tells the story of the Logos, the Word. And of course, we're meant to hear echoes immediately of the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But how did he do it? By speaking a word into the void. The beginning of creation began by speaking a word into the void. And the beginning of redemption in this story began by sending a word into the void. Both creation and recreation were done by a word. It was C.S. Lewis who said, when the author of the play walks on stage, you know that the play is over. But in this case, we are being told that the author of the whole human drama has come on the scene to fix and finish what we have marred and messed up. He is calling, he, he is called here the Logos in Greek. Our evangelist believes that where a person comes from and how far they've come tells us a lot about that person, and indeed that is true. Throughout this gospel, one of the big problems is people don't know where Jesus came from. They think that he just came from Nazareth. One potential disciple even said, can anything good come out of Chitlin Switch up there in Galilee? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Others don't understand Jesus when he says, before Abraham was, I am. You see, you need to know where he came from in order to know why he's here. But why is he called the Word or the Logos? Because the author wants to make clear that if you're trying to figure out the mind of God, the wisdom of God, the logic of God, the sense of God, you need to consider him in the person of the only begotten Son. 
He is God's plan for redemption come in person, in the flesh. No ghost, no spirit was Jesus. He came in the flesh. And that key phrase does, it not, does not mean that the word turned into flesh. He didn't cease to be the word when he took on flesh. It means he took on flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And we have seen his Shekinah glory, the glory that only God himself could possibly radiate. If you want to figure out the character, the nature, the plan, the hopes, the dreams of God for you, you only need to look at the Son. He's the spitting image of his Father. But this story is very much like a Rembrandt painting, and we're going to see a picture of the most famous of Rembrandt paintings now. This is the prodigal son painting. Rembrandt was an absolute master of light and darkness. And what I want you to focus on in this painting is two things. Notice the humble posture of the prodigal son, no longer prodigal, who has come to beg his father to re-accept him. And notice the hands of the father on the shoulders of the son and the acceptance of the son despite the skepticism of that one on the far right in the painting there, the elder brother. Imagine a creator God who made creatures who rejected him like the prodigal son rejected his father. Nothing can be more tragic than when children repudiate their parents. But this is exactly what this story says about the human drama. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Jesus the Jew arrives in Judea saying, Family, I'm home. And the locals basically receive him not. Indeed, the so-called king of the Jews, Herod the not-so-great, tried to have him killed. He stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth, does Jesus, and his neighbors and his own kinfolk receive him not. In John's Gospel, we're even told that the brothers of Jesus, befuddled, bewildered, and envious of their brother, like Joseph's brother was of Joseph, did not believe in him during the ministry. Check out John 7, 5. Imagine being rejected by your own. Jesus, instead had to enlist the least, the last, and the lost of his disciples. And that's exactly what he did. He enlisted IRS agents, otherwise known as tax collectors. He enlisted fishermen who hated IRS agents. Four of them. He enlisted at least two revolutionaries. This is the oddest gaggle of geese you're ever going to find. If you think your congregation is diverse and has a lot of different people, most of whom don't really like each other or know each other very well, you got nothing on Jesus. He picked 12 that should never have been together. They were more like the dirty dozen than the magnificent 12, and regularly they didn't get it. 
this is why I like to call them the disciples. It really wasn't until after Jesus' death and resurrection that the light really dawned on most of these persons. When Jesus came, his kin, his neighbors, the Jewish relatives didn't roll out the red carpet. And very strange people did. Shepherds, astrologers, Simeon, Anna, his own disciples didn't understand this till later. In John's gospel, the prologue is everything to understanding what follows. Because unless you know where Jesus came from, which is to say from God as God, you are not going to understand Jesus. His story will sound more like a fractured fairy tale than the gospel truth. If you don't know this essential truth, Jesus is the incarnation of God, as the Nicene Creed reminds us in various ways. The Word took on flesh without ceasing to be the Word. The pre-existent divine Son of God took on a human nature in the womb of Mary without ceasing to be the divine Son of God. Now that's a mouthful. That's why we call it the Incarnation. I love what John Donne says about this. "'Twas much when man were made like God long before, talking about Adam and Eve, but that God should be made like man much more. "'Twas much when we were made like God in his image long before, but when God was made like us, much more. The mind, the character, the nature, the plan of God is all revealed in this one person, Jesus. It's a staggering assertion. That's God's logic, the logical solution to our dilemma. Now, sometimes people say what the British like to say, that's surely over-egging the pudding. Yes, he was a great prophet. Yes, he was a great teacher. But come on. God come in the flesh? I'm here to tell you today, not only was he the greatest human being to ever live, but he was the great God who became the greatest human being who ever lived. Hands down, he's the greatest person to ever live on earth. You would not know this, but in every single year of the modern era, the number one bestseller book in the whole world is the Bible. You won't find this on the New York Times bestseller list, but it's true. This is the story the world needs more than any other. In John's gospel, you know that the word came from God, as God, and returns to God. You know the whole arc of this D pattern. He came down, he goes back up. The earthly ministry is just the middle act of this drama. And you all know how befuddling it can be if you come in in the middle of the movie. If you come into the middle of the Christmas service and you don't know where Jesus came from, and you don't know he's the incarnate word of God, well, the carols may be nice, the cookies may be good, but in fact, you've missed the point. You've put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. One of my college chums was Dr. Thomas Morris. 
we took religion and philosophy together at Carolina. And he went on to become a very famous philosopher teaching at Notre Dame, and he twice won the College Teacher of the Year Award for the whole country. He now spends his time speaking to Fortune 500 companies, among other things, and lives at Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. Lucky him. But while he was still at Notre Dame, he wrote a very important book, The Logic of God Incarnate. And one of the most profound things he says in this fabulous book is not that God came so we would know he was real. Not so, he didn't come so we could identify with God, as the popular song says, what if God was one of us? Though that's true, too. No, the logic of God incarnate involves the notion that Jesus didn't just come to hang out with us or show us that God was real. He came to take care of us by means of redemption and his death on the cross. He came to die for us. As Dorothy Sayers said, he was the man born to die. You see, we need more than just an answer to our most difficult questions. We need to know more than is God real and can he relate to human beings. We don't just need an answer to our questions. More than that, we need a solution to our problem. The dilemma may be summed up as follows. We've all fallen and we can't get up. No matter how many self-help programs you try, without the Lord, you ain't getting up. Jesus himself explains the logic of the Logos when he comes in person and says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom in the place of the many. Jesus was the man born to die. Now, it's a paradoxical logic, but nonetheless, one we cannot live without if the least, the last, and the lost are to become the first, the most, and the found. In John's gospel, Jesus doesn't just give the resurrection. He freaking is the resurrection. He doesn't just offer life. He is life. He doesn't just show the way. He is the way. Are you getting the picture here? And when he says, before Abraham was, I am, he's claiming to have existed before good old father Abraham. Indeed, to have existed as God before all time. This is the Savior. This is the person who came in person, in the person of Jesus. The question is, could we possibly take this in and comprehend and grasp anything this monumental, this stupendous? We might well be led to feel like the peanut strip that I love so much, where Charlie and Lucy and Linus, who keep showing up at Christmas, I recommend the Peanuts Christmas story. Charles Schultz, by the way, was a very devout Christian person. Charlie and Lucy and Linus are lying on a hill on a pretty summer day, looking up at the clouds and describing what they imagine they see in the clouds. Linus speaks first and says, I see Beethoven composing a piano sonata. Lucy says, I see Van Gogh painting his famous Starry Night painting. Lucy then turns to Charlie Brown and says, What do you see, Charlie Brown? He responds, Well, I was going to say I see a ducky and a pony, but I think I'll just hush. Perhaps, in view of this story, we feel a bit like Charlie Brown. 
what can we really say about this great wonder and mystery in this text? It has been said of the Gospel of John that Jesus bestrides the stage of history as a deity. I also like this saying about the Gospel of John. It's shallow enough for a baby to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown. You can plug in at whatever level of discourse and understanding you are in. How true can we possibly understand the logic of this plan and of this person, the divine Son of God? Well, yes in some measure, in some fashion, to some degree, we can. God boiled the whole salvation plan into a one-man mission, sending his only begotten son to pull it off, and top of which, his son sent the Holy Spirit so we could understand it. He did not leave us without a witness. He sent the Spirit to convict us, to convince us, to convert us, and help us understand. In the prologue, when it comes to a climax, we hear these words. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Interestingly, this is the only use of the word charis, grace, in the whole Gospel of John. The author wanted you to know from the outset that this salvation plan is not a self-help plan. It's undeserved benefit. It's unearned blessing from God. We are being told it's one-stop shopping in Jesus. He's all the things we need wrapped up in one person to save our spirits, to renew our minds, to give hope to the heart, to heal the wounds of outrageous fortune, to bind us together, to create a more perfect union of believers, to save the world. And best of all, we're being told that if the first disciples, who were very theologically challenged, could receive it, believe it, and even begin to understand it, then of course we can too if they could see the radiant presence of God in the face of Jesus like Simeon did, so can we. I want to leave you with a story. Some time ago, I got a letter from Time Magazine, back in the day when people bought magazines. And this is from Time Warner, big company, right? And they left it up this computer to write this so-called personal letter to me where they would type in my name in the blank spaces in a form letter to make it more personal, right? But the computer read my name, Dr. Ben Witherington III, and the computer realized even at .09 font they couldn't squeeze all that into those little spaces in the form letter. So the letter read, and I kid you not, Dear Dr. Third, <laughs> we know you're one of the most important persons in Kentucky, and we're writing to ask you to renew your subscription to our Great American News Weekly. Please, Dr. Third, 
Will you take a moment to just fill in your name, tear off the bottom of this page, and send, us back to, send it back to us in the self-addressed stamped envelope? Surely, Dr. Third, you wish to keep abreast of foreign and domestic affairs, and we can provide the enlightenment that you need. Yours sincerely, Time Incorporated. I was tempted to write them back, Dear Ink, <laughs> when the world tries to be personal. It treats persons like numbers and things. When God is personal, he sends his only begotten son who comes to call you by name. To call you by name. Not as Mr. Social Security number 244 whatever. By name. And that's because he came to redeem you as a person. T'was much that we were made like God long before, but that God should be made like us. Hallelujah. Much more. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our now we get to sing a Charles Wesley Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Will you stand and sing? 